If you have a Bible, take it and turn to the book of Luke. You'll be hearing that for a good while. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke. And in, in honor of that, I, I have a tendency to seem to open with um, children's stories and things like that. I don't know. It must be my stage of life. But as I was preparing this, I thought of a poem from Where the Sidewalk Ends from My Childhood by Shel Silverstein. Um, this is the picture that goes with the poem. If you can see it, it's a hippo uh, with two pieces of bread tied, one on the top and one on the bottom. And the poem is called Recipe for a Hippopotamus Sandwich. <clears throat> and that's the, um, you know, every good recipe book has a picture of, of what you're making. And so that's what it's going to look like in the end. This is what it says. Uh, a hippo sandwich is easy to make. All you do is simply take one slice of bread, one slice of cake, some mayonnaise, one onion ring, one hippopotamus, one piece of string, a dash of pepper, that ought to do it, and now comes the problem, biting into it. Um, and I kind of feel like that's what's, what's about to happen here as we look at the book of, of Luke because of its, its size. I'm not sure how to bite into it, but of course the other famous saying is, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, the catalyst for this series was a conversation that Joel and I had at Starbucks um, where we were talking about scripture reading and Joel reminded me um, as one of his mentors had told him of the importance of returning to the gospels often, returning to the story of Jesus because that's central to our faith. Um, we saw I, as we walked through the Abraham narrative of course that all of scripture is about Jesus, that all the shadows of the Old Testament, this is what we're learning in youth as we look at Hebrews, all the shadows of the Old Testament point to the reality in the new. Uh, we read from the Jesus Storybook Bible that from Genesis to Malachi, every story whispers the name of Jesus. But there is there's something unique, there's something wonderful about the Gospels, about these biographies of the life of Jesus, of hearing his words. They are not more inspired than the rest of Scripture, but sometimes they feel more inspirational, you might say. And so as we turn to the book of Luke, we have a lot to look forward to. I say a lot because Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Um, in fact, if you take Luke and Acts together, uh, which comprise, you might say, like a, a two-volume set of Luke, um, he had wrote both of these, then Luke has written over a quarter of the New Testament. Um, Daryl Bach, an author, breaks it down like this. He says, of the 7,947 verses in the New Testament, someone counted that, uh, Luke-Acts, which is what some people call Luke and Acts, this two-volume set, Luke-Acts comprises 2,157 verses, or 27.1%. <laughs> By comparison, the Pauline letters have 2,032 verses, and Johnian writings have 1,407. So Luke wrote a lot of the New Testament. Sometimes we think that Paul did, but Luke beat him out by a little over 100 verses. Um, all of these verses break down well into about five different uh, sections that follow the, the four-verse prologue in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. Let, let me just walk through the book. We're kind of going to do an overview of this. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, we find what would be called the infancy material. This contains the miraculous births of John the Baptist, um, as well as Jesus. And it also has uh, some unique features. It has three hymns in it that we're going to get to look at. The hymn of, of Mary, of Zechariah, and of Simeon, these wonderful songs of praise. And they all emphasize that Jesus is this promised 
Davidic king who brings peace and light to those that are in darkness. So that's the first section, chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 13, we see some more interplay between John the Baptist and Jesus. John points to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the stage is set for Jesus' public ministry, which starts in, in chapter 4, verse 14, and goes through chapter 9, verse 50. And here, this is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And as he's in Galilee, he calls his disciples... He heals the sick, he casts out demons, he's transfigured before his disciples. And all of this comes right before he reveals for the first time about his death, that his death is coming near the the end of chapter 9, he talks about that. That introduces the the largest section of Luke, and what's most unique to Luke, uh, and this is in chapter 9, verse 51, all the way through chapter 19, verse 44. And this describes Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Luke gives us a lot of stories that are not actually in the other three Gospels. We hear about the Good Samaritan, which is is only in Luke, as well as the Prodigal Son, one of the most famous stories of Jesus. We can thank Luke for that being included, as well as the rich man and Lazarus, and one of my kids' favorites, Zacchaeus, is in Luke alone. And so we get to look at all of these wonderful parables. We also get to look at some of the difficult teachings of Jesus. Uh, And then at the end, uh, in the last section, we would call it the Passion Week, chapter 19, verse 45, through the end of the book, Jesus uh, teaches in Jerusalem. He's tried falsely as a criminal. He is crucified, and he rises again. And that's chapter 19 through the end. Uh, Luke also gives us the wonderful story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, if you remember this, where Jesus talks uh, to to some of his disciples And he also ends with a wonderful description of the ascension. So he begins at the beginning, and he ends at the end. He begins with John the Baptist, not even John the Baptist's birth, but the annunciation of John the Baptist's birth, and goes all the way until Jesus ascends into heaven. We we could even say that that's not the end of the book. If you think about volume two, he begins with the ascension and goes all the way until Paul is in prison in Rome and shows the, the spread of the church. And throughout all of these different sections, there's different themes that emerge, like Jesus' love for the outcasts of society. Luke is so big on that. Or the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke really emphasizes the Holy Spirit, not only in, in the book of Acts, but also in the gospel of Luke. We are going to um, be comforted by words, but we'll also be pierced in our hearts by some words. Luke, Luke has some strong words to say about money and possessions that really uh, apply to our hearts. And we're going to uh, marvel at all of these these different things. Now, the point of me sketching this, I'm obviously, these are very broad strokes. The point of this rough out- outline is kind of to, to whet your appetite. Um, this is maybe, hopefully, is like the, the dessert tray at a restaurant, you know, where you see what is coming. Oh, we're going to get to talk about the Good Samaritan. We're going to get to talk about the road to Emmaus, and, and we're going to see all these these wonderful stories. Give us something to look forward to. Now, how long is this all going to take us? Um, I really have no idea. Uh, <laughs> when I originally sat down to map things out, I thought, wouldn't it be great to start the book of Luke, to, to go through Jesus' birth, and then at Easter time end with his resurrection? And then I sat down and looked at the book of Luke, and I thought, I just can't do that. <laughs> you could do it. And we could, we could go through it quickly. I just didn't feel that that was what would be best for us at this point. And so we're going to take our time. We'll have some breaks 
in between, uh, one bite at a time, we'll get through this elephant. Um, I believe it's important, though. I think that this is as we invest our time in seeking to understand and apply the words of this book that we are going to be changed. Uh, I hope it's exciting. I'm excited to think about looking at the Gospel of Luke. I keep talking about how big it is. We should probably get started, right? <laughs> Let's start. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we'll use these as a means of identifying Luke's purpose and his goal in writing the gospel. And we'll cover some background material as well. Luke chapter 1, and let me read verses 1 through 4. This is different sentences, sentences in our um, English translations at times, but it's one long sentence in Greek. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now we see at the beginning in verses 1 through 4 that the author is not listed. It's obviously called the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke. That's what my Bible says, but that title's not inspired. Um, most believe, however, that, that this gospel would have circulated with a name attached to it, and probably it was Luke's name. The fact that Luke was the author um, went unquestioned. No one really had any questions until the 19th century when I guess everyone questioned everything. Um, and all of the earliest church fathers, uh, they don't question at all. They identify Luke as the author of this book, and there's really no reason to think that it's it's not. One of the ways we know that is in volume two of this, what we call Luke Acts at times, uh, we get some clues about Luke's authorship, specifically in these sections we would call the we sections, where um, the author of Acts starts talking about how we did this. Most of the time on these um, journeys on the ship, we did this, that we um, arrived in this certain place. So he's obviously involved. He's traveling with Paul. So this is a, a companion of Paul on these on these missionary journeys. Now, the way we can track down Luke is that we, we know that he was in, with Paul, but he's not mentioned in the book of Acts. So we can take all of Paul's companions that are mentioned in the book of Acts and say, well, it's none of them because they're not the we mentioned in Acts. And then we can look through the letters and say, well, who are all of Paul's companions that are not mentioned in Acts? And we get a fairly short list, and Luke slowly emerges as the most likely candidate of, to, to have authored uh, this book. Colossians 4.14 tells us about Luke and calls him the beloved physician. He was a doctor, and, and people have seen some different aspects of that that come out in his writing. Uh, he talks about a girl having a fever, and the other gospel writers say that she had a fever, while Luke says she had a high fever. He, he has notes some of these details because he is this physician. We're also fairly sure that not only was he a physician, but he was Greek. Uh, tradition tells us that he was from Syria. Uh, also tells us that he proclaimed Paul's gospel. Other tradition that we don't know for sure, but may be true, is that he was unmarried, that he was childless, and that he died at an old age, possibly as old as 84. You kind of get a picture of who Luke was and as he wrote. One thing that we also know is that he was not an eyewitness of Jesus. He was not there. He was not one of the disciples. Right at the beginning, Luke acknowledges that others have taken on the task that he has, namely that they are relaying all that Jesus has accomplished among those who lived in that time. You see, again, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So there were other works. Other people were trying to talk about who Jesus was. This may have included Mark's gospel, 
uh, as well as maybe some other accounts that, that were written. Uh, and Luke doesn't say anything bad about these accounts. He doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm writing to contradict these. He just says that it seemed good to him to write his own account. Um, he compares them to the prophets of old who, who were eyewitnesses and, and gave this, this information to the generations that would follow. So Luke says, it just it seemed good to me to take on this task um, of doing the same thing that he had uh, that he had followed, he says that he has, he has followed things closely. Look at that in, in verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. So he's, he's paid attention to all these things. He's a companion of Paul. He's, he's watched this and he said, I think it's going to be good to write this down. And so his task is not him saying, here's what I saw, but rather he's compiling information and he is going to lay it, lay it out in this orderly account. So you might imagine Luke as kind of a reporter. Uh, and he, he goes out, he conducts, conducts interviews, he gathers all the facts that he can about Jesus, and then he puts them down for everyone to see. Uh, as far as when it was written, most people say that it was in the early 60s, which seems very plausible. And, and because of that, there were a lot of people that had seen Jesus face to face that were still living. And so when we think about Luke going around, he's not, he's not gathering stories from long time past, but he's talking to people who were actually there. Uh, this is all just in my own imagination, but I like to think about, I wonder who Luke talked to. I think that some of the people that show up in his narrative were probably people that, that he met and that he had interviews with. Uh, you think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus only shows up in Luke, and I just wonder, did Luke meet Zacchaeus and hear his story and say, oh, I'm going to include that. That's a great story about who Jesus was, and I'm going to put that in my narrative. You know, Luke has more about the birth of Jesus than any of the gospel writers. And it's fun for me to think, well, maybe he met one of the shepherds, you know, and, and talked to him about what happened that night. Maybe even, maybe even Mary, the mother of Jesus, was still alive at that moment and could talk to him and share stories about the birth and share about the time that she and Joseph left Jesus at, at 12 years old in Jerusalem and um, to, to hear those stories. Some even say that Luke interacted with, with John because there's some similarities between their Gospels. Now, whoever he interacted with, what we know is that they, these are eyewitness reports. These are people that were actually there. Not only did he talk to people, but he looked at some different, some different documents. There were these other witnesses, these other accounts that he could draw on. A lot of scholars talk about this one. They call it Q. Kind of got this great name. This, this source that no one knows, but they just assume exists. And it's very likely that it could have. And it, they say that Matthew and Luke drew from this source, Q, as well as from, um, from the book of Mark, and they compiled theirs. And so um, some postulate that, Ruth, that Luke actually wrote kind of a first draft. And he wrote it using this Q resource along with some of these eyewitness accounts that he had. And after he had his first draft, he came in contact with the Gospel of Mark. And then he took the Gospel of Mark and wrote the second draft and included these stories that would fit well. It's all speculation, but it's kind of interesting to think about how he would have written uh, this Gospel. But what we, what we learn as we go through this is that Luke, Luke was a great historian. Luke knew what he was doing. He was paying attention to details. He was writing out this account. In fact, there was a, a scholarly non-Christian rabbi. He said that Luke was the finest historian in the ancient world. That's pretty high praise. So this orderly account is what he calls it there. He says in verse 3, It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you. Now, when he calls it orderly, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's chronological. 
Rather, what it means is that he is ordering his material purposefully, that Luke is trying to communicate something. Luke was not just a historian saying these are the facts. Luke was a theologian. Luke was a pastor. He had a message that he wanted to communicate, and we see it come out in the text as we walk through it. He wanted people to see who Jesus was. I think one of the the, the big thing that we could put over Luke is to say that, that he wanted people to see that Jesus is the Savior. That Jesus is the Savior of the world, we could say. He uses that word Savior and the verb to save more than any other of the New Testament authors. And, and he talks so much about the world and all the people that God wanted to gather in. So he organizes this material purpose, purposefully. He wants to convince us. He wants to convict us. He wants to emphasize certain things. We said the outcast. That's this huge theme in the book of Luke. The poor, the sinners, women who were outcast in that society. Luke talks more about women than any other of the gospel writers. And he makes, he makes Samaritans look good. The Samaritans were the ones that were despised in society, and Luke chooses them twice as the pinnacle of, of, of following Jesus, both in the Good Samaritan and in the story of the, the ten lepers, who, who turn, the one who turns back and gives thanks, he was a Samaritan. Not only the Samaritans, but he shows uh, Jesus eating with short tax collectors uh, that everyone in society despised. He shows Jesus rejecting the prideful hospitality of Pharisees and chooses to rejoice at the humble repentance of a prostitute. He emphasizes Jesus as Savior, and he makes it clear that Jesus can and desires to save anyone and everyone. It's a beautiful story. It's a theme that carries over uh, into Acts as Luke uh, shows that the gospel starts in Jerusalem, but it quickly spreads to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and it gathers in Jews and Gentiles alike. And Luke is, is saying over and over again, Jesus is the Savior of the world, of all people. Even think how he opens it. We always talk about the shepherds at Christmas time, the shepherds who were the despised in society. The shepherds are the first to hear the good news that Jesus has been born. Luke does that on purpose, and, and he is showing that, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. It makes sense. It makes sense not only in, the, in light of the fact that, that Luke was a Gentile, but also who his audience was. We have this mysterious character. It says in verse 3 again, It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent Theophilus. Now, who is this guy? He's about as mysterious as the author of Hebrews, and we could probably spend just as much time trying to figure out who in the world he is. The name means uh, lover of God. It's a combination of two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and phileo, meaning to love, so lover of God. And some people, because of this meaning, have wondered if, if the name Theophilus is just meant to say that this book is written to all those who love God. That sounds really beautiful. I don't think that that's the case. I think Theophilus probably was a real person. Maybe it was a pseudonym. Maybe it was his his real name. But it's it, it's written to this man, Theophilus. He's called Most Excellent Theophilus, which probably gives him some sort of standing and, and rank in society. He was probably a Gentile. Um, possibly we might call him a, a, a God-fearing Greek, someone who had been exposed to Judaism and believed in it, but yet at the same time had not fully immersed himself in that community, but also um, was investigating who Jesus was. Um, 
he has he has studied these things. He, it says that he has been taught that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Theophilus has heard some things about who Jesus is, and Luke tells us that 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 he, he's answering these questions. He wants to give Theophilus some certainty. Uh, part of the the reason that Theophilus may have wondered what's going on is this is written in a time of of persecution, in a time when the church is is being cast out. Uh, they're seeking to to tell this message of who Jesus is, and they're being rejected. They're being killed for their faith. And so maybe Theophilus and others were looking at this and saying, is this really from God if everyone who believes this is being killed? If everyone who believes this is becoming an outcast in society? And so uh, Luke is, is writing um, not simply to Theophilus, but but all who are looking at this this new religion, this new faith, and wondering, what, what does this mean? What are the differences here between Judaism? Why are these followers being persecuted? What is the deal with this new community of Jesus followers? Um, one commentary I read talks about, Daryl Bach writes this. He says, this new community still argues for its connection to the God of Israel and her people, and yet it's dealing with the emergent reality that many Jews do not only not only do not accept the followers of Jesus, but in fact are hostile to them. Add to this the new community's encouraged inclusion of Gentiles. That was an issue that they were letting Gentiles come in, as well as it's giving the figure of Jesus an exalted place, this man who was hung on a tree, and everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. And one can begin to see how the range of innovation the new community had generated might be controversial and need explanation. So Luke's trying to explain this is what this community is all about. This is what the gospel is all about. So Luke writes with with many purposes, but there's one that's clearly stated here. I love this in verse 4. He writes that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. One of the reasons that Luke is writing is so that we can be certain. That we can be certain not only of the historical facts about Jesus' life that Luke records, but also of the truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We can be certain that Jesus is is the Savior of the world. We might be reminded of, of John. You remember at the end of John where he says something very similar. In John chapter 20, it says, John chapter 20, verse 30, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Similar to Luke's purpose, isn't it? One of my favorite passages to think about this, too, is in Second Peter. In Second Peter chapter 1, this is such an encouraging uh, passage in, in so many different ways. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, let me read this. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, We didn't follow things that were made up. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, we saw these things with our very own eyes. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17 goes on. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's describing the transfiguration. Peter says, we were there. 
We saw it. We heard it. I think very often our reaction to that is to say, I wish I would have been an eyewitness. I wish I would have been there and seen it. I wish I was one of these eyewitnesses that Luke talked to. Then I, then I would know for sure who Jesus was. Then I would know that he truly is the Savior of the world. Then I would know that these facts about him are true. What's interesting is that, that Peter takes that. The, the greatest thing that they saw in the life of Jesus, he says, we were there. We saw it. We were eyewitnesses. And then he says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed than what? More fully confirmed than having been on the mountain and seen Jesus transfigured, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I think we look at the gospel sometimes and we do say, I wish I was there. And, and there's something about that. I wish I was there. That would be so amazing to have walked with Jesus. But Peter says, it was great. But you have a prophetic word even more sure in the words of Scripture. Because these men did not write of their own accord. They didn't come up with myths. They wrote as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And so as Luke writes this, he says, I want to write this to you, and I want you to know that what I'm writing to you is from eyewitnesses, and you can be certain of the facts that I am telling you. We can be certain, we can be sure of what Jesus has done and who he said he was. So Luke then, along with John and Peter, he's writing not simply to communicate history, he's writing to communicate life change. He's writing so that we can be certain of Jesus's life, not simply so that we have the historical facts straight in our head, but so that his words would pierce our hearts and so that we would devote ourselves fully to him, that we would say he's, he's not just the savior of the world, but he is my savior. I put my faith in him. I am certain that this man was who he says he was, that he was God in the flesh, that he came to live and to die to be my savior, that he deserves my complete devotion. My hope as we go through the book of Luke is in part, very simple, that, that we would just come to know who Jesus is more. It may be that you don't know Jesus very well. It may be that, that you don't know him as your Savior. Yes, you've heard these thoughts that Jesus is the Savior of the world, but has that become something true in your heart and in your life? Do you believe with certainty that he is your Savior? I pray that as we go through this, that suddenly that, that Jesus will jump off the page in an amazing way through the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will say, with certainty, wow, he is the Savior of the world, and He is my Savior. Others, for us, it might be that um, the, the life change that will come will, will be when Jesus comforts us with His words, or when He rebukes us with His words, when we see things and it pierces down into our hearts. So, at the outset of this journey, at the outset of this trying to, to take one bite at a time and to get through the book of Luke, my, my hope is that, that our hearts would be excited and that we would pray. I don't know if you remember when we talked about how to listen to a sermon, but one of the first things was to, to listen expectantly. I pray that we would come to the Gospel of Luke expecting to hear from God, expecting something amazing each week to be challenged, a heart that's ready to hear. I pray that we would engage, that you would read along with this. This week that, that you would take out your Bible and you would read Luke chapter 1 
and, and seek to, to engage with the passage and, and come on Sunday mornings ready to hear from God's Word, that we would discuss it amongst each other, that this would be something that, that is not just something that's on Sunday morning, but, but follows with us throughout the week. Um, our small group does sermon reviews, not sermon reviews, we review the sermon, we talk about the sermon each Wednesday, and I'm so excited to, to not only talk about this on Sunday, but to, to gather together on Wednesday evenings and to talk. And if you're not a part of a small group, come on over to ours and we'll talk about Luke for, for the foreseeable future here. But um, I, I hope that this is that this is exciting. This is you know the first step on this long journey, but to see all these amazing things about who Jesus is. And again, this emphasis that we could have certainty, certainty that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Not simply that we would know the historical facts, but that we would read through this and we would come to see that Jesus is the Savior of the world. The Gospels are the place that you will so often hear about those who are skeptics of Christianity. They come and they read through the Gospels. And by the time they get through the Gospels, they've met Jesus, they've heard the truth, and they fall on their knees and repent and accept Him as their Savior. So, I also think that as we start this series, it's very appropriate that we are taking time to take the Lord's Supper this morning because it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus that everything is driving towards. That even as we think about um, about the Christmas season, you may have heard it said that the shadow of the cross is over the manger. That Jesus was born to die so that we might have life. So I think it's appropriate as we begin this journey to realize that that this is the point. This is why God sent his son into the world. He sent his son in the world to live and to die so that we might have life. Shadow of the cross hangs over all the events of Jesus' life because it is there that the love and the mercy, the justice and the wrath of God, they come together. They accomplish our salvation. Jesus was pushing towards this moment. Jesus lived a righteous life. We'll watch throughout the book of Luke how he never sinned, never failed. He never slipped up like we do. And then he died, not because he had done anything wrong, but innocently. He was tried in a mock trial, and he was crucified as a criminal, even though he'd done nothing wrong, because he took our sins upon himself. He died in our place, took the wrath that was due to us, and he received it. And when we put our faith in him, He gives us the righteousness that he had in his life, and he takes the penalty for our sins and forgives us. That's what the the Gospel of Luke is really about. That's what it means that he's the Savior of the world. Not that he's a political Savior. Not that he's coming to, uh, that he will come and make everything right, but what he has come to do is to forgive us of our sins. And so, as we gather around the Lord's table, I would say that if you walk through life with the certainty that Jesus is not simply the Savior of the world, but that he is your Savior, if you have placed your trust in him alone for salvation, if you have followed him and been baptized as a believer, and if you are the member of a local church in good standing, then we would invite you to join with us around this table. We set those standards up not um, as some sort of arbitrary thing, but to to guard the the, uh, sacredness of this table. Um, to say that those who have accepted Christ as Savior, who have been baptized and who are members of a church, we we invite you to join with us 
If that's not true for you, I would just ask that you simply allow the elements to pass by. But let's take a moment of, of silence to prepare our hearts as we think about who Jesus is, that he is the, the Savior of the world, that he has come to make all things right, to save us. And after that moment of silence, I will pray and we will distribute the elements.